Welcome to Pro Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two great co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knoth. What is up? I feel like we need to really amp up the enthusiasm today, guys, because not to get too navel-gazy, but it is our 300th episode of the Pro Say podcast. I like that you began the 300th episode by saying we already messed something up and we weren't enthusiastic enough. But <laughs> I'm going to try and I carry tried. that. I'm going to carry that note forward from here on out. But yes, it is episode 300. It feels nice. It does feel nice. I mean, technically, I think we've actually even been on the mic more than 300 episodes because we've done some specialty things like movie club that we didn't actually number. But 300 numbered episodes feels big to me because my brain is addled. The only way I could equate what this means in, in my life is to compare it to television shows. So nice. will you indulge me? Sing it, sis. Yeah, I got a few <laughs> that I think we're in the running with. And then I have some aspirational ones for our future. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. South Park has had 317 episodes. We can definitely oh, get okay. there. Great. Yeah. ER, 331. Easily in our sights. Sure. Kicking it old school. Dallas had 357. I think we can best okay. them as well. Okay, so those are the ones we can definitely get. Here's some ones for us to aspire to. Grey's Anatomy is okay. 420 and counting. I was going to ask specifically <laughs> if you didn't list the episode count for Grey's Anatomy. There so you thank go. you. Of course I did. <laughs> and fun fact about me, I've watched all 420 of them. Oh, wow. Blaze it. Okay. <laughs> uh, the original Law and Order, so also legal, 488. Okay. And my favorite of that franchise is Law and Order SVU. That's 538 and counting. So Nate Silverhive. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Rise up. I wanna I wanna throw down the real gauntlet. Who knows if we could ever make this happen, but Are you can do some like soap opera stuff. Like what's going on no here? Better, oh. Alex. Okay. Can we be the Simpsons? Oh, oh. yeah. 750. That's fewer uh, than I would have guessed. And counting. It's still on. Yeah. Well, um, I always put this in perspective because The Simpsons is older than my younger sister. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> no so, no I'm offense saying, to Amber's younger sister. I mean, but I mean, you really put I her think, on blast there. <laughs> well, I just think it's a good way to put it in perspective. So that also means, Haley, you're younger than my sister. Yeah. So The Simpsons is older than you. Wow. Yeah. I did not think that. That's this was something like a to grapple with. Thing, and now I feel like a lot of people are like zinging like sort of barbs at each other. I don't really know what's going on right now. <laughs> no barbs. I actually think um, it's aspirational. I mean, don't we want to, let's reach those heights of The Simpsons. 300 episodes sounds like a lot, but we've got room to grow. We do have room to grow, and I'm thankful that we've reached this benchmark, and I'm happy to be here with you guys. We do have, as always, an amazing show this week. Later on, we will hear from Andrew Strickler, pro se stalwart, pro se veteran. He and I had a very interesting discussion about the impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, which sort of was a very hot news item last week, which we will get into. But Andrew wrote about it from a very interesting perspective, which is the legal defense that Paxton is likely to raise in the context of his Texas Senate impeachment trial. And there's this weird doctrine of Texas law that involves, you know, if voters knew enough about 
indiscretions of public figures and then elected them anyway, then they should be forgiven. And this hasn't really been tested in the way that Paxton wants it to. And Andrew talked to a bunch of attorneys in Texas. Very interesting story and a very interesting interview with him. So stick around for that. But in the meantime, we do have news to get to. Haley, I think you should start us off. We here on the show uh, for 300 episodes now have very much enjoyed when legal news intersects with pop culture. And fortunately, I have a, a good one for us that does just that. A California federal jury recently handed the rapper T.I. a pretty big loss in a contentious $100 million intellectual property dispute. Now, you might think, yeah, T.I.'s involved. This is probably over a song. No, this is not over a song. This is not over really music at all. T.I. was mad about some dolls. He said a toy collection called, regrettably, in my opinion, OMG dolls, infringed (laughs) the trade dress and misappropriated the name, likeness, and identity of a pop group that he owns, which is also regrettably called OMG Girls with a Z. After a surprisingly (laughs) heated 10-day trial, the jury sided with the maker of the dolls, finding that that was not the case. There was no no theft here. I can't wait to hear more about this trial because it's just got a lot of uh, things that are catnip for me. I mean, we've got celebrities and some weird genre pop culture stuff going on, but I maybe need to know more about the dolls and also the pop group, which I've never heard of. Can you just kind of set us up here? Right. We all need to do some uh, fact-finding on this one because, yeah, I can't, can't say these were well-known names, which does come into play um, in the merits of the case here. But so T.I. co-owns OMG Girls with his wife, Tamika Tiny Harris, who, fun fact, was a co-writer on the TLC hit No Scrubs. Yeah, actually, I know Tiny mostly because she was in a girl group with Candy Burris, who is a stalwart on the Bravo network of Real Housewives of Atlanta. Yes. Thank you. It all comes back to Bravo, folks. Oh, we try to run right. away, we'll, but you we'll, cannot. We'll have time for that later. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Okay. Yes. So OMG Girls was created by Harris, and it features her daughter as one of the members. The group never put out a major studio album, but they did tour. They racked up tens of millions of views on YouTube, and they frequently appeared on T.I. and his wife's reality shows. Now, turning to the dolls. The dolls are made by a company called MGA Entertainment. There are 31 dolls implicated in the suit, and they're part of a collection called the LOL Surprise! Exclamation point, OMG lineup. I made the dire mistake of looking further into these dolls and unfortunately learned that LOL stands for Lil Outrageous Littles and OMG stands for, I cannot get over this, Outrageous Millennial Girls, which (laughs) I love that. As a millennial myself and a very young one, There's a lot to unpack here. I'm not sure that these are actually representative of my generation, but I try and shed that from your (laughs) podcast hosting duties. Yes, we we can't do it myself. We all we all do it. You got to leave your biases at the door. We got to return to uh, to journalism here. 
Yeah. So these dolls are super colorful. Their hair is dyed and is in fun little styles, and they're wearing fashionable outfits. In the suit, T.I. said his group's protected image was similarly a combination of their OMG name, bright colored hair, and edgy clothing. All right. So we get the idea that there's this group and there are some dolls. And <laughs> there the two roads diverge, right? And so I am a little surprised that it made it all the way to trial. We can talk about that later, probably. But the trial was very contentious, as you indicated. How did we get to this point where this um, a trial over children's dolls and this sort of somewhat defunct music group got so heated. How did we get there? Firstly, I should note that this current trial is actually the second trial held in the dispute. In January, the judge overseeing the case declared a mistrial after jurors heard statements from a witness for T.I. and his wife about what she considered MGA's appropriation of Black culture. Those statements were inadmissible, according to the judge, and that's why it was declared a mistrial. Now, there was actually quite a bit of conflict in the case that centered on race. At one point, an attorney for TI accused MGA's attorney, whose name is Jennifer Keller, of engaging in racist behavior during that first trial. And that was after the white attorney used the N-word when quoting rap lyrics which she was doing to try and argue that the kid-friendly MGA would never want to be associated with profane T.I. and his wife. And there were also some accusations of extortion flying around. Last week, MGA's CEO took the stand and he said T.I. Sue is a false and total lie, and that's when he called it extortion. Oh boy, a lot going on here. Let's dig in a little more to what MGA had to say They were obviously successful during this retrial. So what else did they argue here? During closing arguments, Keller argued that there were multiple paths to victory for MGA. One of those was the jury could find that the dolls are a First Amendment expression. She also said the jury could find that the group wasn't popular enough to be worth copying. And she also argued that the jury could find that the trade dress was abandoned when the group stopped performing in 2015. Keller also had kind of a funny example for the jury that I wanted to share. So at one point, she told them, imagine a doll called Barbie's attorney friend, Jennifer, and that doll wears gray, black, or navy pantsuits, has brown or sometimes blonde hair, and she's basically describing her own appearance throughout the trial. (laughs) She said if the jury were to follow T.I.'s arguments and legal theory here, then she could go and sue Mattel for trade dress infringement over that doll, even though, you know, she's not exactly super famous and her look hasn't gained what's called a secondary meaning in the marketplace. Well, she's famous now because we're talking about her on Pro Se. Yeah, Um, that's true. But I do take the point here. It's a very interesting argument to make to the jury. I'm also not ruling out that this might have all been viral marketing for the Barbie movie. Um, as we're, <laughs> at, as we're listening to it. Here. No, no, no. Um, no, it's a super interesting case here. And after all of it was said, I mean, MGA prevails here over TI, but that's rarely the end of the story. What did TI say after the verdict was reached? Law 360 reporter Craig Clough, who's been covering this whole ordeal, actually spoke with TI. Uh, I've been 
meaning to hit him up and and ask, get some deets on uh, what T.I. is like in person. But T.I. told him after the verdict was read that he mostly didn't really want to comment because he wants to hear what the jurors have to say. But he did say he respects their verdict. Tiny had a better quote. She said, it's horrible, but whatever. So... I mean, that's how I live my life most. Oh, most exactly. <laughs> Regardless of what happened in this case, but yeah. <laughs> so, of course, there's always the possibility that T.I. and Tiny will try to get the verdict thrown out or try and get yet another trial. But so far, they haven't indicated that's their intent. So for now, the uh, what I've deemed the battle of the OMGs finally appears to be over. I don't really know how to pivot us away from something as juicy as rappers and, you know, these bands and these dolls and all of the details you had there. These bands, uh, these dolls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that story had a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm going to something that I really am bringing up on the show because it's a pet thing I love to talk about. And that's the bar exam. So I think most people will remember, especially longtime Pro Se listeners, that during the pandemic, the bar kind of went haywire. Online test taking was a mess. It opened up the door to sort of a wide array of simmering criticisms about whether or not the test itself achieves the goal of certifying qualified lawyers. And that talk has only continued as we have moved past the height of the pandemic into this endemic stage. And with that as the backdrop, the National Conference of Bar Examiners this week said it is a step closer to a pretty substantial overhaul of the bar exam. This quote, next generation exam, they say will better meet the needs of the legal profession, but not until 2026. The last bit there about not until 2026, it does make some sense if you think about like not wanting to throw a loop to people who are currently in law school and just wait for the next cycle of law students to deal with whatever changes they're going to make. But let's get to the news at hand. What are the changes to the bar exam that we are envisioning here. So the National Conference of Bar Examiners develops a bar exam uh, and the content for that for 54 U.S. jurisdictions. And it pushed out what's called a content scope for the changes to the bar that will happen, as I said, in 2026. The document's preliminary, but it outlines material to be covered on the new exam in eight areas of legal knowledge and seven categories of practical skills and abilities. I'm pretty interested in that last part. So last year, the group requested public comment on a preliminary outline of this quote-unquote next-gen bar exam and um, said that it would play up skills and reduce the relative importance of subject knowledge. They got nearly 400 comments on that outline, so plenty of people had things to say about it. That's on top of a study the group conducted with responses from nearly 15,000 practicing lawyers and members of the Legal Academy They gave input on the knowledge and skills that you actually need to effectively practice law as a newly licensed attorney. So they've taken a lot of input here to come up with this overhaul. That's a good sign, I have to say. But also, I feel like we should have perhaps issued a trigger warning of sorts before we got into this. (laughs) You know you're not wrong, Haley. (laughs) The bar exam and uh, its preparation and its aftermath can be very traumatizing for all Honestly, it's the time of year to give a trigger warning, too, because most jurisdictions offer the bar in July and again in February. So the July sitting of the bar, people are studying hard right now. (laughs) So It is crunch time. Yeah. I mean, just for some perspective, because I always like to, you know, like the old person I am, crow about how hard it was back in my day. 
I took the Virginia Sidle bar. Up and next to the fireplace. Yep, here we go. <laughs> I walked to school uphill in the snow both ways. Um, <laughs> to take the bar yes. exam, clearly. <laughs> yeah. uh, when yeah. I took the bar in Virginia, there were roughly 26 subjects included in that bar exam. And that felt like too many. And in fact, the bar examiners think that's too many. So the eight subjects that will be tested um, under this new proposal include, I'm just going to rattle off the list. So get out your pencils, current law students or I people that want to go in the next year. Business associations, civil procedure, constitutional law, contracts, criminal law, evidence, real property, and torts. So that's the subject areas. Subjects that are going to get booted from the exam, conflict of laws, family law, trust and estates, and secured transactions. So you don't need to learn anything about that anymore. Okay. Fam- um, I mean, family law, I mean, the divorce bar is reeling. Yeah. <laughs> family Who law is it? not on the bar exam anymore, you guys. <laughs> and trust in the states for that matter. That's a lot, it's a lot of sort of just don't worry about it. You yeah. better um, hope your marriage where your marriages work out because uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. A lot of you're not uh, going to be harder to find a, an attorney <laughs> in the in the coming decades. So yeah. perhaps the bigger change here, though, and the thing that I found really interesting is an expansion of skills testing to include legal research, investigation and evaluation, client counseling and advising, negotiation and dispute resolution, and client relationships and management. Those are not the kind of skills that I had to study for back in the day about the, for the bar exam. So this is very interesting and I think a lot more practical. So to get this all right, though, I mean, these exams sort of have to be vetted in a bunch of ways and proven out. The new exam does have to be tested. You have to test the tests as it is. You sure do. You got to test the tests. So over yeah. the next several years, thousands of law students and recent graduates will answer draft questions in a two or three hour testing session, like basically practice these and make sure that when these answers are evaluated, that they're fair and and capture what they are intended to capture. So this is just more testing for these poor people who are already <laughs> testing? These are basically going to be guinea pigs, Haley. So we're yeah. not going to force uh, extra people <laughs> to... Uh, current people trying to pass the bar exam to do extra stuff. These are It's like the right. survey questions like a, you take at the end of a customer service. Uh, yes. You know. Except already, it lasts hours. Well, sure. <laughs> look, l- lawyers have stamina. What can I say? So they have already started this, these, this testing, and they're going to continue to do that to make sure this is all going to work the way they want it to. If you happen to be a law student or know somebody who is, this is definitely worth reading up on. In our Law 360 Pulse section, we have a fuller breakdown of what some of these new areas, particularly those foundational skills sections, which I think are so interesting, are all about. So I would definitely recommend to people that have any interest in this to go check out that reporting. Texas lawmakers have impeached the state's Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton after a watchdog committee revealed a raft of ethics violations. Paxton now faces a trial in the state Senate where he is expected to present a unique defense. Voters knew about his various scandals and still elected him to office anyway. This so-called voter forgiveness doctrine does have a footprint in Texas case law But legal experts in the Lone Star State agree that the embattled AG 
is facing a steep climb to exoneration. Here to break down the nuances of Paxton's impeachment trial defense is Law 360 editor-at-large and pro se veteran Andrew Strickler. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you back. I will escort you right to the left to the VIP room where all of the stalwart pro se guests are. You have a jacket with a crest, I think, at this point. <laughs> a chalice, a pro se chalice. Yes, yes. <laughs> slurp from right now. <laughs> okay, so before we get into the sort of nut of your reporting, which is, you know, Paxton's defense here, I do think it's important to give at least a little bit of backdrop on the conduct that brought the Texas Attorney General under fire in the first place. So can you catch us up to the impeachment proceedings to date? Okay. Well, there is a lot to dig through because Paxton <laughs> has been in the news on and on and on for, for years and years, including for legal troubles. He's basically been accused of various kinds of wrongdoing since even before he got into office or basically upon getting into office. Most, though not all, of the articles of impeachment revolve around a particular relationship he had with a Austin real estate developer uh, named Nate Paul. And there's a whole series of allegations that he basically used the powers of his office to help Paul, who was a political donor and friend of Paxton, uh, to aid Paul. Uh, that includes directing employees of the attorney general's office to write a legal opinion to help him. Uh, he's, Paxton's also accused of basically a directing a very junior Texas prosecutor to conduct a sham investigation of Paul in order to benefit him, in order to sort of make it look okay. A lot of these allegations were first raised in 2020 after Paxton got into a dispute with a group of people who was working for him. These are conservative legal uh, officials in the attorney general's office who Paxton fired after they'd gone to uh, report his misconduct, alleged misconduct regarding this real estate developer. Yeah, and so the other thing I think that is central to what we're talking about here is that there was something relating to like a whistleblower lawsuit, which uh, bubbled to the surface of a lot of his different corruption allegations. And I think that's very central to what comes later. So what was that all about? Well, the group of former employees of the attorney general's office who Paxson had fired went to court after this happened and basically aired a lot of these allegations regarding Paxton and this real estate de uh, developer among claims that they were retaliated against um, for reporting misconduct. A retaliation suit that is still going on, uh, at least up until, <laughs> at least in theory, uh, this whole thing got raised in the legislature, at least it came to this impeachment vote, when Paxton went to lawmakers and asked them to fund a $3.3 million settlement that he had reached with this group. And suddenly, many of his GOP colleagues uh, in the state legislature said, no, 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 we don't think this is a good idea. We want to look more closely at this. Next thing you know, they are recommending articles of impeachment. And that, I think, coasts us into 
He's already been impeached, as I said, and I think that that is a good entry point to talk about what you were reporting extensively on for us at Law 360, which is about this idea of voter forgiveness, which, if I'm understanding it correctly, is this concept in the law that if there was some awareness of something that he did wrong, or at least some allegation of something he did wrong, and the voters were aware of it, and they elected him anyway, then he perhaps could be off the hook. Please explain this like legal theory a little bit more and tell us how Paxton is expected to use it based on the conversations you had with attorneys in Texas. Right. Well, it, it is a little hard to get your head around. <laughs> There's a lot going on. But the, <laughs> yeah. the, the starting place is uh, State Government Code 665081 which is a very bare-bones kind of codification of this forgiveness idea that we're talking about. And the statute states that a Texas official can't be removed from office for an act committed before the officer's election. And this is a statute that, um, in hindsight, may have been better written. Uh, it's, as I say, <laughs> it's very bare bones, but it is basically a codification of this sort of obscure doctrine that does come up in the law in various, uh, in various contexts. But the concept is that in a voter situation on a ballot, if a voter goes into a ballot box and votes for a office seeker who the voters are aware has some kind of misdeed in their past, by voting for them, they are essentially forgiving that official uh, by ratifying them in the ballot box. And the, the government code that uh, Paxton and some of his supporters are raising is a codification of that idea. Um, another way to think about the forgiveness doctrine um, is through this concept of ratification. Uh, this also comes up in various contexts, but the idea there is that, for example, if you're an employee who has been accused of something wrong, there's an argument that if in previous instances where the employee did whatever it is they, they did and the employer didn't taken action against them, they effectively ratified the conduct that they're now being accused of. Yeah. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one in this case because, the again, the Texas Code and this forgiveness doctrine is extending on that and saying, well, there's sort of an affirmative forgiveness happening in the ballot box that is special for elected officials. I know you talked about this with, with a couple of different attorneys. I mean, can you square this within the context of what we just talked about with Paxton's alleged conduct? I mean, he is alleged to have had sort of unsavory dealings with this fundraiser and then maybe asking the legislature to compensate for this whistleblower settlement. I mean, is he then saying like the public was aware enough of these things or can can you situate the legal concept you just said with with what Paxton is alleged to have done? It's a little right. hairy, I understand, as you've explained. It, yeah. It's a little hairy, but it, it's important to think of it as a timing issue. So yeah. Paxton has been uh, elected, he was elected in 2015, re-elected in 2018, elected again last year by a wide margin. By the time 
of his previous election, just you know, several months ago, re-election, um, all of these allegations about Paul and the real estate, this had all been talked about. Everybody in Texas was aware of it. There was this whistleblower suit, which is still going on. Law 360, we wrote about it on and on and on. And basically, Paxton and many of his supporters are saying, look, we have a statute that says if voters were aware and they voted for him anyway, the law protects him from removal. The tricky part is, and there's one of the tricky parts for Paxton, is the statute does not mention re-election, right? And the experts I spoke to said, well, that's kind of an issue because if you're thinking about the meaning of the statute, why it's there, it's about conduct before office. It's about forgiving something that happened, something forgivable, not some massive crime or some huge constitutional yeah. issue, but some kind of misconduct that voters could reasonably say, we still want this person in office. For Paxton, he's arguing that in his second reelection, that voters were well enough aware of allegations that he was denying very vehemently and continues to strongly deny were well enough aware of those that it would sort of trigger this protection in Texas state law and foreclose an impeachment. Um, it's quite an interesting uh, sort of legal position to be in because he, in effect, would be arguing that voters knew he'd done the bad thing yeah. and were forgiving them even as he was denying and continues to deny that it ever took place at all. So what kind, of, what kind of position is that to be in? It's, it's a pretty strange one. On top of that, there's very little case law around this particular statute and the forgiveness doctrine. In a few of the cases that have, the courts have, the Texas courts have looked at this, they have not leaned into a very broad interpretation of the statute that doesn't play well in Paxton's favor. Yeah, well, and the other thing I wanted to ask, I mean, even of the scant case law that there is, Andrew, this is still an, this is an impeachment trial that's playing out in the state Senate. I don't know if precedent, however thin it may be, would even, like, play that much. I mean, it's still just like a, we, we talked about this in the context of Trump's two impeachments, about, like, how a Senate impeachment trial is a combination of a legal proceeding in a political proceeding, I don't know if, I mean, it, it already sounds like he, he may be leaning on fairly thin precedent, which will then also hinge on, I don't know, political, like the way the political winds are blowing, if you care to speak to that at all. I don't know, because that is what lays ahead of him. It's a state Senate trial. Right. And, and you, you bring up a point that the uh, state Senate committee and other people who are supporting the impeachment have already brought up and basically saying, the idea that the attorney general can lean on a statute related to voter ratification and election to head off a political process exactly. within the state legislature <laughs> is very, very dicey. And yeah. basically they're saying, no way, that's, that's not going to fly. We are uh, in a different context here. And by the way, the law just simply doesn't apply at all anyway. So there we have it. Yeah. So uh, we'll get you out of here on this. I think we've laid out a lot of the different sort of legal and political headwinds here. Generally, uh, I mean, I know you got a lot on your radar, but just as we move forward here, we're going into this Texas State Senate trial. 
as an observer, what would you be curious to see as this process plays out? Well, it's interesting because Texas doesn't have procedural rules for an impeachment process. So right now, this sort of surprise impeachment, the huge surprise impeachment uh, of Kim Paxton means that the Senate is going to have to come up with the rules right away. That shouldn't be too big of a challenge considering that there are models all around, but it does sort of open the door for Ken Paxton and other supporters to say the rules are being manipulated or as they're coming up with them, they're being designed to disadvantage him. Um, there have already been uh, talk about due process violations from Paxton and supporters. I think we can expect to hear more of that as those uh, procedural rules come uh, start to come together. I think we could also look for Paxton to be raising those same kind of due process arguments within the impeachment trial, assuming they, this gets off the ground, or in court, the possibility of going to court with some sort of mandamus petition saying, you know, the courts need to intercede because we have officials here who are abusing their power and you are my, my, my only resort. Um, I think that that's a, a real possibility as well. A lot of drama in the Lone Star State with its top legal officer. And we have one of our top legal reporters here, Andrew Strickler, to uh, walk us through it. Thank you, Andrew. As always, a bastion of knowledge here for Pro Se. Thank you so much for coming on the show and breaking it down for us. Love talking to you. Thanks, Alex. All right. See you next time. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we are returning to the exciting and emerging area of artificial intelligence in the legal profession, which is clearly creating some headaches in certain contexts. Amber, this is a wild one. Take it away. I'm so ready to talk about this. I yeah. feel like the things that I brought to the table this week are are sort of some pet issues for me. First, I got to run some bars on the bar exam. And now I get to talk about AI, which I'm low-key obsessed with. So yeah. we have talked about AI on the show many times before. We had a whole episode dedicated to it not that long ago and about how it may upend the legal industry. That's episode 291, if people are as into this as I am. A lot of lawyers, or as the New York Times has called lawyers in a recent article, word merchants, which I, I resent think we that. Are. I mean, yeah, I don't. Uh, I actually loved it. I think it's true. All right, we'll take this discussion offline. <laughs> so they called, they called lawyers word merchants because AI can obviously mess with the word merchants of the world. So well, clearly, uh, I, a lot of lawyers yeah. are very worried that they may be out of work if AI really takes hold in a strong way. But this is sort of a tale of how folks shouldn't panic just yet because AI really can't do everything. Here's what happened. A New York personal injury firm and two of its lawyers are facing potential sanctions after they submitted a brief in federal court containing non-existent cases and opinions, and that was all produced by ChatGPT. You know, we mentioned earlier in the show that perhaps a trigger warning was necessary for the <laughs> bar exam discussion. It perhaps is necessary here as well. This is, uh, this sounds like a nightmare. It kind of <laughs> is. So uh, here's what happened. Attorney Stephen Schwartz of 
Levadow, Levadow, and Oberman, he acknowledged that he used ChatGPT to write a brief that cited six cases that do not exist. It was a personal injury lawsuit. A man was suing an airline for allegedly um, injuring him when a metal serving cart struck his knee during a flight. When the airline tried to get the suit tossed, the man's lawyer submitted a 10-page brief citing more than half a dozen court decisions. Turns out, none of those court decisions are real. (laughs) Not great. Not great. (laughs) So defense counsel called into question the authenticity of the citations. And the district... Yeah, they looked at those and thought, didn't come across those in our legal research. You're what right. in the world? Do one minute of research and then be like, wait a minute. <laughs> Can't find that. Stevens this. versus Barcart X doesn't actually exist. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. What? So they flagged it to the court. The district court judge started looking into it and eventually called the whole mess unprecedented circumstances, which indeed it is. This is the first time I've heard of this. The court figured out that one of the and this is their term, one of the bogus cases was a supposed decision by the 11th Circuit. It was called Varghese versus China South Airlines. Okay, better better name than I just came <laughs> better up name. with. Better name, and listen <laughs> to this Chat detail. I'll give ChatGPT that, okay. Okay, give ChatGPT this as well. <laughs> Included in some of the, the back and forth with the court was an attachment of the decision that further contained citations and quotations from other non-existent cases. It's a nesting doll of fake cases. So the district court reached out. I heard you like (laughs) fake court cases. So I put some fake court cases in in your court cases (laughs) and put them in your brief. So the district court reached out to the 11th Circuit and that circuit court confirmed that the case was fake and it also does not appear in databases like Lexis. So yeah, it's nowhere. It is indeed fake. Well, so how did this resolve? I mean, did the guy um, <laughs> did the guy just come clean and say, hey, listen, you got me. I it was a late night and I asked <laughs> ChatGPT to find some case law. And, uh, you know, it was like Johnny Five got struck by lightning and, and wrote my brief. I don't know. Honestly, Alex, it pretty much went down exactly like that. All so right. Schwartz eventually had to fess up and said in a filing to the court that he, quote, relied on the legal opinions provided to him by a source that has revealed itself to be unreliable. Well, no way. (laughs) Sure did. (laughs) He went on to say he'd never used ChatGPT before for legal research, and he just didn't know that it could provide completely fabricated content. So he just sort of pleaded ignorance in this whole thing. He also provided some pretty telling chat logs that I thought were hilarious. So these were the logs of what he had been querying (laughs) ChatGPT with. He asked it things like, is Varghese a real case? And then the AI says back to him, yes, Varghese versus China Southern Airlines is a real case. Oh, the my. AI so he also, did. Yeah. That, that did is a Haley asked, the same. Go ahead. <laughs> he, but here's the thing. He asked ChatGPT, hey, is this thing you said real, but didn't bother to go to Lexis, Westlaw, Bloomberg, any of the databases to yes, look it up. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so he didn't do right. any of that. Okay, so he asked, you know, is it a real case? The AI says, yeah, it's a real case. And then he also has a bit of this exchange with ChatGPT where ChatGPT says back to him that upon double-checking the cases, that they do exist and they can be found in legal research databases such as Westlaw and LexisNexis. Turns out, no, that's straight up not true. These were fake and in no databases. So lots of falsehood out of the AI here. 
The judge in this case has actually ordered Schwartz and another attorney, a man named Peter Laduca, who was the attorney of record but not doing the research on the case, to show up at a hearing on June 8th, so that's coming up soon, where they can be sanctioned for this behavior. I do think, I mean, we're having fun here. It's the offbeat section, of course. I do think this is like pretty illuminating in terms of the way we've discussed generative AI, chatbots like ChatGPT, and the way it can affect the industry because the sort of like thumbnail version of this is that AI still doesn't know anything that we don't tell it, right? It can't come up yep. with its own ideas. Like it only knows what is put into it. And it's about the way that it digests and presents the information that it already knows. But it is interesting that this person at least thought to ask, is this real? And the AI said, yes. I almost think that's worse. Uh, It'd be one thing if you just took Uh, it for granted that it was real and didn't think to ask Uh, that. But if you're going to ask the question, just look it up in a reputable database. Uh, I don't get it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's two seconds of legal research. I don't know. Amber, you were right to nod to our other uh, episode 291 where we talked all about this. And actually, something I neglected to say on that episode, which was a quote from an attorney that Ryan Davis, our editor-at-large who covers patents and, and the Federal Circuit, sourced... And this person basically said, AI will not replace attorneys, but it is a tool that that smart attorneys will use. And it seems like there are unwise ways to use That's tools right. clearly here. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny that you bring that up, Alex, because the last thing I wanted to leave us with was not just sort of this outsized tale of somebody who went way wrong with AI, but instead sort of some fallout that I think is going to maybe take hold in a bunch of courts. Some courts are getting kind of stressed out about the idea of fake stuff like this that AI can generate. And so one Texas judge, uh, Brantley Starr of the Northern District of Texas, has issued a standing order that attorneys filing pleadings in his court will now have to attest that they wrote those filings themselves without the help of a platform like ChatGPT. Or if they did use AI as part of the process, that they have to disclose that and say that at least if they use one of those platforms, they checked all the facts and citations before submitting the filing. So it's going to be very clear in that court, at least. And um, we had some reporting on this. It seems like the consensus among court watchers is that this is probably a trend that will catch on, that there will be more standing orders in other courts to prevent this kind of problem from happening because, honestly, that kind of standing order seems pretty sensible and more judges are probably expected to do this in the future. I'm not going to use ChatGPT or any other AI tools to prepare for this podcast. That is a promise to my other co-hosts. <laughs> and if I do, I <laughs> will disclose. Very much appreciated. And I will certainly not use them to present my visage in the Zooms that we that we record these on. Do you think if you queried it to write a podcast segment in the style of Alex Lawson from the Pro Se podcast, oh they could gosh. listen to enough of our 300 episodes to do it for you? I've often said, I mean, I mean, you're you're kind of joking around. This is kind of coming up in a few more sensitive areas of the Law 360 universe. But I will just say they can't do what I do. I'll just say that. You know what? I believe it. I (laughs) believe it. They can't do what I do. Who can recreate this magic? Not a robot. No, not a chance. And by they, I mean the robots in in whatever (laughs) form they want to come at me for. They can't do what I do. They can't do what Kelly does. They can't do what Amber does. They certainly can't do what Haley does. Happy to have a say from the robots. And to that end, I would like to thank my human co-hosts on this <laughs> auspicious 300th episode. 
Thank you, for Alex, for being with me. Thank you. And Haley. Cheers to 300 more. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Andrew Strickler, and our contributing reporters, Tracy Reed, Craig Clough, Matt Perez, and Jack Carp. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review and five stars. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the many things we discussed today, that's when you go over to our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.